The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We are looking this morning at Matthew uh, chapter 9 at verses 27 through 34 at two astounding miracles and two opposite reactions to those miracles. In the beginning of the universe, at the start, right at the very beginning, God created light. Now, when God said, let there be light, in effect, he was saying, I want to communicate. I want to reveal I want to show myself. I want to display myself and put my glory on display. And so God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then God went about the business of creating things worth seeing. That's one way to look at Genesis chapter 1. He created the world in all of its majestic glory and splendor. He separated uh, clouds from water below. He separated water from dry land and all kinds of living things, verdant green and all kinds of colors came on this earth. And then every species of living thing, all of them worth looking at. And then he created people who had eyes, vision, eyesight, the ability to receive, to take in what God has made. David said in Psalm 139, I praise you, O Lord, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. He said that. I think that that applies to every aspect of our bodies, but I think there's something spectacular about the eyes, about vision in particular. You know, at this moment, as you're looking at me or wherever you're looking, whatever you're looking at, your eyes are making literally billions of calculations and adjustments every second. An astounding amount of information is flowing into your mind through your eyes and you're processing it. I think about some of the most beautiful things that I've ever seen. I think about, for example, Acadia National Park up in Maine, Mount Desert Island. And that island is right on the coast, right on the Atlantic Ocean. And there's one cliff in particular that as you're sitting there, you can see Echo Lake, a freshwater lake, cold in October. I know I've swum in it before, but I can see it. And I can see the Atlantic Ocean and the rocky coastline as it goes up and down. And I can see the trees. And I can see eagles riding the thermals in a kind of a spiral pattern up the six or seven hundred feet up that cliff and then up over my head. And as I'd watch them fly occasionally in a kind of a lazy way, they would flap their wings and just gain control for a moment. And they would go over us. There would be large ones and small ones. And we would watch them and we'd watch them for hours. I can still see it in my mind. An incredible thing. Now, as I was looking at that, my brain was processing things more complex than I can even understand. There was the form or shape of the birds. There was the motion. There was the color. There was depth perspective. Science tells us that all of those different aspects of vision are handled at different parts of the brain. And yet we only see one image, that eagle that's flying over our heads at that particular moment. What an incredible thing is eyesight. Now, we are dependent on our eyes for so much, aren't we? So much of our understanding of the world flows in through our sight. Our sight mediates and validates other senses. When you hear... 
or touch or smell something in your world, don't you immediately turn to look at it? Isn't that one of the first things you do? And so you want to see what it is that you're, you're hearing. In Revelation chapter 1, John heard a voice behind him of the Lord, the risen Lord. And what, what does he do? He turns to look and he has a vision of Christ. He hears first, the sound comes first, and then he looks. By the way, that was the order in Genesis, wasn't it? God spoke, let there be light, and there was light, and so the sound comes first. But he turns to look, and so the sight validates what his senses were telling him. Try this sometime. Not now, because I'm preaching, it wouldn't be polite. But try it when you get home, okay? Look at something, an object, maybe on a table. Look at it for a second or two, then close your eyes. Turn away. And reach out with your hand, and almost invariably you'll be able to put your hand on it. You know, neuroscientists don't understand that. They don't understand how the vision can lock in a spatial relationship around us all the time. People who design robots would love to be able to figure it out because they can't do it. But we do it naturally, don't we? I know it because when I walk into my kid's room at night, when it's pitch black in there, and step on something that's been left on the floor. Of course, that never happens. They're very tidy. But... Uh, when I step on something, I realize that all I needed was one second of light. And sometimes I'll turn on the hall light for a second, look in the room and turn it off. And then I can navigate around whatever may have been left there and not put away. I won't bump into their bed or into their furniture. I have set the room in my mind with just one second of light. We depend on our eyesight for so much, don't we? And for that reason, vision, the idea of vision, saturates our language. For example, we speak of insight. Something a poet has into the world, right? Or perhaps you pray for insight when you read the scriptures. You're asking for insight. Or foresight. What is foresight? It is uh, something that business analysts are supposed to have who write for Wall Street Journal, right? Or something that a prophet would have into the future, a vision of Isaiah the prophet. What about hindsight? It's said to be 2020 for people who are regretful of something that's happened in the past. Hindsight is 2020. Or how about this expression, out of sight, out of mind. That's an excuse for forgetful people. <laughs> or how about this one, we shall see. What does that mean? We will experience, we will find out, we will learn, we will discover. We say, we shall see. The scripture is filled with the word behold. In the Greek, it's edu. In Hebrew, hine. Behold, something happened. And so it means, look at this, experience it, take it into you. And so we're dependent on our eyesight for many things. There's also another expression which I think the text will refute, and that is, seeing is what? Believing. Is that true? No, because Jesus did incredible miracles in front of his enemies. Did they believe? No. They saw and yet did not believe. And so it's a fascinating thing. Seeing is not always believing, not for Jesus' enemies. For this reason, because we are so dependent on our eyesight, a poll was done recently and showed that Americans fear blindness more than any other disability. Think of what your world would be like if you were totally blind. And yet for all of that, only a few of you or a certain number of you have perfect vision. It's perhaps one of the marks of the fall, the effects of sin on our bodies. A quarter of you statistically will have myopia. That means that your, your lens focuses just a millimeter to the front of your retina. And so you need lenses to adjust it. How many fingers am I holding up right now? Okay, some of you got it right, too. 75 million Americans or more have myopia. It needs to be adjusted. I think that blind people, therefore, are perhaps among the most courageous people that there are. Think about it. What, what would it be like to have to move through the world without being able to see? 
And so we're going to meet in the text today two very courageous blind people who would not be stopped. We're going to keep calling after and pursuing Jesus until they got what they wanted. Now, modern medical knowledge has made incredible strides. A few weeks ago, Dr. Alan Carlson, uh, his baptism you saw and remember, he's uh, an expert in LASIK surgery. And I got to observe what he did. And they're just taking off just a little bit of a misshapen lens. I'm not going to go too far, Alan, because I'm going to make mistakes uh, in what I'm saying. But it's incredible what eye surgeons can do. I worked for a number of years for a company that makes eye surgical equipment. Cataract surgery was their specialty, but also retinal surgery and little tools that could adjust things. So science, uh, specifically eye science, has come a long way since the Renaissance when Dr. Georg Bartisch, I just found out about this guy, an eye doctor during the Renaissance, went around healing cataract uh, patients by poking their eyes with a sharp object. And so it created a little, little hole and they could kind of see through it amidst their pain. Uh, anesthesia at that particular moment was a matter of strapping their arms and their legs firmly to the chair they were sitting in. So that's what they had at that point. But no one, not even today, not even here at Duke or in, in, at Johns Hopkins, no one can do what Jesus did in the text. Jesus has power to heal blindness. And that power, I believe, was given to him alone in a very unique way. We also have another miracle in our text today. That is the healing of a man who was mute. He was dumb. He could not speak because of a demon. I found it a very interesting symmetry. Through the eyes, we take in. Through the mouth, we speak out. And so Christ healing what means we have to take in the world from God, to take in, and then healing the means that one can speak out, hopefully praise to Christ for what he's done. Now, as we've seen in Matthew's gospel in these nine chapters, Matthew is step-by-step unfolding the credentials of Jesus Christ to be king of the kingdom of heaven. Right from the very beginning of the gospel where we have his genealogy, where he lays out the evidence that Jesus, or the, the proof that Jesus is the descendant of David, the descendant of Abraham, he is the Messiah. The genealogy would prove it to any Jew who knew the significance of being the son of David. We're going to see the term son of David in the text today. And from there we have the evidence in the end of Matthew chapter 1 and into Matthew 2 of Jesus' supernatural birth, the virgin birth, and what God did at that point, evidence that he was not just the son of David, but the son of God. He was God in the flesh. And then we've seen unfolded from there the miracles and the teachings of Jesus in an incredible way. More evidence than we need to prove the deity of Christ and that he is indeed the king of the kingdom of heaven. Now, in verses 27 through 31, we see two blind beggars who are healed by Christ. We begin by seeing their faith in pursuit of Christ. They're pursuing Christ by faith. Look at verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, these were true beggars. They were totally destitute. Now, in the world today, statistics tell us that 45 million people in the world are blind, legally blind. World Health Organization tells us that. Most of them are in the third world areas. Their blindness caused by many things, unsanitary conditions, infectious organisms, blowing sand, accidents, war, malnutrition, excessive heat, bright sunshine. Infants are born blind because of bacteria they'll pick up from their uh, mothers as they pass through the birth canal or through diseases they may get while in the womb. When I was in Pakistan as a missionary, 
Uh, I had the privilege of helping an English eye doctor as he performed surgery on a trachiasis patient. And the problem there was that the eyelids had grown inward so that all of their eyelashes were rubbing on the surface of the eye every time they blinked. Now, what is it like for you when one eyelash detaches and, and gets into your eye? Are you a multitasker at that point? Can you do many things? Or are you going to stop until you get that lash out of your eye? Well, imagine all of your eyelashes rubbing on your eye with every blink. Eventually, you will go blind, literally. And so he was working on the eyelid. And I won't tell you what he was doing to it, because that was, as far as I know, the only time in my life that I came close to fainting. I was holding a flashlight as he was performing the surgery. And he was rectifying the situation and all of a sudden I noticed my own vision was getting darker on the edges and I was starting to sweat and the the uh, flashlight was moving more and he looked at me and he said um, you know you might want to go sit down for a minute I'll be all right here and so I sat down but you know there in that third world country there were far more blind people than we would see here in America the plight of the blind is extreme isn't it it's impossible to work they're stripped of the beauty and the information that we get all the time through our eyes they're stripped also of hope for the future because they are literally incurable in most cases. Nowadays, we would say otherwise about certain conditions, but there's so many forms of blindness that even today we will not be able to cure. Now, these two were friends, I guess. You've heard the expression, the blind leading the blind. It actually was something that was known. They would stay together in communities. They would beg together and they would be together. They were companions in darkness. Now, for all of that, there are some advantages to being blind. You think, what possible advantages could there be? Well, there are spiritual advantages to being physically blind. What are they? It strips you of the illusions of self-reliance, doesn't it? You realize you cannot make it alone. You can't eat or survive alone. You must have help. It makes you a beggar. And it's a good thing to be a beggar before Christ, isn't it? It's when you're self-reliant that Christ will do nothing for you. It's when you think that you can do it or make it on your own that Christ has nothing for you. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but who? It's the sick. And the people who recognize that they are sick will go to Christ for the healing. And so there is the advantage. And so they're going to pursue Jesus. They're going to follow him. They're going to cry out after him. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Another thing that blindness does is it makes you bold and impervious to public opinion. You don't care what people think you need to eat today. And so you're going to beg boldly because you need to in order to survive. We get the same thing with Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 and following. As Jesus came to Jericho and his disciples were leaving the city, a blind man named Bartimaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was going by, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now listen. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. He didn't care what people thought. Impervious to public opinion. And so he's going to pursue Christ until he gets what he wants. Now, what do they do in verse 27? There's an unrelenting persistence for mercy. As Jesus went on from there, it says, Two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. They followed after Christ, stumbling pathetically. Blind leading the blind, following the sound of the crowd, perhaps, or something. Trying to find where Jesus might be. And despite the delay, they keep calling out after Christ. They're pursuing him. And what are they calling for? They're calling for mercy. What is mercy? It means getting something from God that you know you don't deserve. I think grace means getting, not getting from God the things you do deserve, namely wrath and judgment, in addition to all the blessings of the gospel. 
But mercy, I think, specifically in this sense, means getting something from God you know you don't deserve. And so they come crying out for mercy. John MacArthur put it this way. These two men came to Jesus not only with a right understanding of his great worthiness, but with a right understanding of their own great unworthiness. That is the attitude of the heart that the Lord honors and accepts. Listen, Christ was the most merciful human being who ever lived. He reached out to the sick and healed them. He reached out to the crippled and gave them legs to walk. He healed the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, and the mouths of the dumb. He found prostitutes and tax collectors and drew them into the circle of his love. And he redeemed them and set them on their feet. He took the lonely and made them feel loved. He took little children and gathered them into his arms and loved them. Never was there a person on the face of the earth who showed the mercy of this one. Jesus Christ. And so they're crying for the right thing. They're crying for mercy. One thing about mercy, by the way, this is a very important theological point. You can't demand it, can you? You can't say, I deserve mercy. See, that those two don't go together. You can beg for mercy, but you can't demand mercy. And so they were crying out for mercy. And they had an uncommon faith because they called Jesus Son of David. Now, Son of David is a messianic title. They recognized and they believed that Jesus was the Messiah promised. In the Old Testament. Now, Matthew began his gospel this very way in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Those are the opening words of the New Testament. And so Jesus was indeed the son of David. Now, this was later very controversial to the Jewish leaders. Very controversial. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey and they're all crying out, the children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And they're very upset, the, the scribes and Pharisees, very, very angry. And they wanted Jesus to make the children stop. And Jesus said, haven't you read in the scripture? Out of the mouths of children and infants, you will have ordained praise. I am the son of David. But later, Jesus himself also had to correct the understanding of Son of David. He asked his enemies, Who, what about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they answered, Son of David. He said, how is it then that David in Psalm 110, speaking by the Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Jewish way of thinking, a father would never call his own son Lord. The, the son would honor the father and the mother, as Moses commanded. So how could it be that Jesus, physically descended from David, would be worshipped by David and called Lord? And where do you think David is right now, by the way? What is David doing right now? Is he not calling him Lord and worshipping him in heaven? He is worshipping his own son. Because he was more than just a physical descendant of David. He was the son of God incarnate in the world. One of the things that Leon Morris says, one of the things we have to recognize about these beggars is that they would have seen nothing about Jesus. Any information they had about Christ came in how? How did they get their information? Through hearing, right? Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing the report, doesn't it? And so they actually represent us. Have any of you ever seen Jesus? Have you ever seen him do a miracle like we're talking about here? No, you're hearing about it this morning. Do you believe? Do you believe? the way that these blind men believe. They got all their information through hearing. Faith comes from hearing. And that's how they knew that he was the son of David. Now, Jesus is going to test their faith, isn't he? What does Jesus say as he walks by and they cry out, have mercy on a son of David? What does he say? Not a word. He keeps walking. They get up, they follow, they're crying out. They continually cry out, the Greek says, after him. He doesn't say a thing. He goes into the house. Is he cold? Is he callous? Is he unfeeling? Not at all. He wants to test their faith. 
And furthermore, when they come into the house, it was probably Peter's house where Jesus was staying in Capernaum. He tests them even further. He looks at them and says, do you believe that I am able to do this? Now, this is very interesting. Ordinarily, the scripture does not speak of belief that when connected with Christ. It speaks of belief in Christ. And as a result of that belief that he can do many things. Here he starts with the healing. Do you believe that I am able to do this thing? He asks them that question. It's an interesting question, too, because why do you think that they're there? He knows their hearts. He knows they believe. But what does he want? He wants them to testify to it. He wants them to speak their faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> yes, Lord, they answer. God, by the way, frequently tests us, doesn't he? He tests our faith. Have you ever felt like this in prayer? You're crying out to him, Lord, son of David, have mercy. And he just walks right by and doesn't even seem to answer. He is testing your faith to see if you'll be as persistent as these blind men who would not give up until they got what they wanted. So they come into the house and Jesus tests them further. Do you believe I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they answer. Then, verse 29, he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, will it be done to you? He touched their eyes. Remember last time we talked about how Jesus was touchable. Jesus was in the world, incarnate, physical, that he might touch people physically. He did many of his healings by touching. He would lay hands on people and heal them. Didn't need to do it. All he had to do was speak and it would be done. No question about it. But he loved to touch people. And so he reaches out and touches their blind eyes and says, according to your faith, will it be done to you? And instantly their sight is restored. Alan, I think it must have been 2020. Absolute perfect vision. We have to imagine that it was. And so he touched their eyes and immediately their sight was restored. Now, this astounding miracle, I believe, is utterly unique to Jesus Christ. Utterly unique to Christ. There is no record anywhere in the 39 books of the Old Testament of a healing of a blind man. It had never been done. Moses did miracles, mighty, incredible miracles, show the power of God. Elijah and Elisha even saw people raised from the dead, right? Those miracles were done, but this one, for some reason, God reserved to his own son. Interestingly, after this point, there's no record of it either, except for the, the scales that fell from Saul's eyes. And I think it's different, perhaps, there. Maybe not, but I think it's different. It seems that blindness, the healing of blindness in particular, was reserved to the Son of God. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, we see that the giving of sight is a divine activity. The Lord said to Moses, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, there's a lot of theology in that one verse. Theology of suffering, theology of muteness and blindness. I can make a man blind and I can make him see again. I can do all of those things. I am the Lord. And so, this recovery of sight was something unique to Christ. The Messianic prophecies in Isaiah are clear. Isaiah 29, 18, In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap, leap like a deer. Can you hear Handel's Messiah in this? Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. 
Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. This is God speaking to Christ, I believe. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And so when Jesus began his ministry in Nazareth, his hometown, he got up on the Sabbath and went to read the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. And it was unrolled for him, and he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captors, captives, listen, and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And then he spoke these words. Today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. This miracle, this power of recovery of sight to the blind was unique to Christ. It was his special miracle. He alone had this kind of power. Now, notice Jesus says to the blind man, according to your faith, will it be done to you? Now, I've thought about this all week long, and it suddenly hit me. I mean, maybe you've thought about this before, and it's nothing to you. But I think this is interesting. There is a direct correlation, in my opinion, between faith and eyesight. Both of them are essentially passive, are they not? Both of them essentially take in what God is presenting to you. Does the eye make something red or blue or green? Does the eye make something beautiful or majestic? Or lofty? No, but it sees it and receives it and takes it in. Jesus said, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. And so also, faith does not make a reality from God. It doesn't create something that God wasn't willing to do. But rather, by faith, we take in what God is doing. By faith, we receive. By faith, we are justified. By faith, we are forgiven. And by faith, these two men were healed. According to your faith, will it be done to you? Archbishop Trent put it this way, the faith which in itself is nothing is yet the organ for receiving everything. It is the co conducting link between man's emptiness and God's fullness. Faith is the bucket let down into the fountain of God's grace without which the man could never draw water of life from the wells of salvation. Faith is the purse which cannot of itself make its owner rich, yet effectively it enriches by the wealth it contains. And so they had faith for this healing. But sadly, they did not have faith for obedience, did they? Look how the account goes on, verse 30 and 31. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. Their faith did not extend beyond the healing to submission and obedience. <laughs> I think it's easier to believe for salvation than to obey constantly. Can anyone say amen to that? Amen. It is true. It is harder for us to obey the commands of Jesus Christ day by day, moment by moment, than it is to trust him for salvation. It's an incredible thing. And so they disobeyed him. There was nothing that complicated about the command. Don't tell anyone about this. Now, you might say, now, but Jesus, why? Why? I mean, this incredible miracle. Why not publish it ab abroad? And in many cases, he wanted some of his healed people to be published abroad. But he's a king. Are we allowed to go to a king and say, Why? We're Americans. We can ask anyone why we want. Question authority. Big bumper sticker. We can go ask Jesus the king, right? Jesus did not want them to do this. Now, we can speculate. It could be that he did not want too early an association with this title, Son of David. Could be. Could be he didn't want lots of blind people coming for healings, although Jesus did more blind healing than any other kind of healing. 
But it doesn't really matter, does it? Do we need to understand in order to obey? We really don't. We just need to understand the command, and then we obey. And they understood, and they disobeyed. Now, in verses 32 and 33, we see the other healing that he does. It's almost just inserted here as though it were nothing. Verse 32 and 33, it says, While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute or dumb spoke. We first see that he is demonized. That's the Greek word. It means controlled and, and, and really in one sense possessed, I guess, by a demon. Realize a demon can possess nothing because they know their time is short. But he had controlled this man so much that he lost the ability to speak. And so we see him dumb, mute. Imagine the tragedy, unable to speak to a loved one, a wife, or uh, unable to speak to a child or a parent. Unable to pray out loud, unable to sing praise songs, unable to put out any words at all. Chrysostom said this about it, The affliction was not natural, but the device of an evil spirit. For this cause, neither doth he require faith of him, but straightway heals the disease. So he doesn't ask him anything. He doesn't interrogate him. He just heals him. He drives out the demon. This man was destitute. He was a spiritual beggar. He was without hope and without God in the world, completely without resources. And so he was a fit vessel for the mercy of God. And so he is delivered. A simple command from Christ and the demon is gone. The formerly silent mouth is now enabled to speak. Now here's where it gets interesting. What did he say? Well, the text doesn't tell us. Did he say thank you? Did he, did he praise the Lord? Did he shout, I can talk again, everybody. Look, I can talk. Did he speak? The demon had controlled his tongue and silenced it. And so the power of the demon over the tongue was broken, but the power of the heart over the tongue is not broken and never will be. For out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if the man had a regenerate heart, he would speak regenerate thoughts. If he did not, he would not. Who knows, but later that week he was heard gossiping or slandering or arguing or telling an off-color joke. Or perhaps he was heard speaking words of praise and glory to God. We really have no idea. Oh, I hope he used his speaking ability to speak words of praise to God. James put it this way, we all stumble in many ways. If, many, ne, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That's what James says about the tongue. So I have no idea what this man did. But I do know this. Jesus warned us that how we use this thing, this mouth, will be ample evidence or give ample evidence for our eternal destiny, whether heaven or hell. He put it this way, Matthew 12, after his enemies did in Matthew 12, the very thing they're about to do in our text, namely ascribe Jesus' healing powers to the devil. They ascribed his supernatural healing power to the devil. Jesus said to them this, Matthew 12, verse 34 through 37, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. 
So we have no idea what this man went out and said. But I do know that his speaking record from that point on was kept in heaven. And all Jesus needed to do is look at what he said over those years, and he'd know whether he was saved or not. How do you use your tongue? You don't have a demon controlling your tongue. You have a heart which controls your tongue. What does your tongue show about your heart? That's a question, isn't it? At that point, we have an assessment of Christ. Amazed and open versus angry and opposing. Look at 33 and 34. The crowds were amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Christ is on the dock right now worldwide. He's standing there waiting to be assessed, waiting to be judged. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Just like Pilate on the judge's seat and Jesus standing before him, we all make an assessment about Christ. doesn't change who he is. He is God. doesn't change the reality about him. But we are assessing. We're weighing. And so the audience, the people watching Jesus at that moment, weighed who he is. The evidence was the same, but the reaction was very different. On the one hand, some people were amazed and open. They said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. They searched back and thought about Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Daniel and all of those, and none of them had done this. This is a first. They'd never heard it before, and they're ready to believe in Christ. But then there were others that were angry and opposing. Perhaps they were jealous of Jesus. Perhaps they were offended by his independence. Perhaps they were angry at his rebukes and felt prideful. Perhaps they were guilty by his holy example. But they were set against him forever. And so everywhere Jesus ministers, we have a what? We have a division. Every time. Into believers and unbelievers. Jesus put it this way. Do you think that I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. In John's gospel, again and again, it says, but they were divided. But the Jews were divided. Again and again, it happens. And so in John chapter 10, verse 19, at this point it says the Jews were again divided. Many of them said he is demon-possessed and raving mad. They ascribed to Jesus the power of the devil, the very same thing we see in this text. (laughs) But others said these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a man possessed by a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so there's a division, and there's going to be a division, isn't there, on Judgment Day? There'll be a division. There'll be wheat from chaff and chaff from wheat. There'll be good fish from bad fish and bad fish from good fish. There'll be sheep from goats and goats from sheep. Again and again, the images of division come. And the issue is always the same, just as it was when the bronze serpent was lifted up and all of Israel is divided into two categories, believer and unbeliever. So it will be at the end of the world. Now, what application can we take from this incredible miracle story? First of all, the astounding power of Jesus Christ. He creates and he heals. He has power. September 11th in our country showed that shock therapy does not jar anyone out of spiritual blindness. It doesn't matter how many of our buildings will be erased by terrorists. Spiritual blindness will never be healed that way. There's only one savior from that kind of blindness, and it's the same one that saved from physical blindness, Jesus. As you look at Jesus, what do you see? When you look at him, what do you see? Do you see an ordinary man? Do you see a myth? Do you see a God among gods? Do you see a great spiritual leader? 
Well, the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the eyes of the, of the world so they cannot see in Christ what he really is. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. True conversion occurs when God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, makes his light shine in your hearts to give you a light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So when you look at Jesus, what do you see? What do you see? Is he a savior? Do you see him on the cross dying for you? Shedding his blood that you might have eternal life? Do you see that? Do you see him risen from the dead, showing hands and feet to doubting Thomas? Do you see that? Or do you see something else? And then secondly, what do you say? Can you speak a word of confession that Jesus is your Savior? Romans chapter 10, with this we'll close. It speaks of the word of faith. What does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with the mouth that you confess and are saved. Please close with me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.